Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Colin Hunt, who is a visiting fellow with the Griffith Asia Institute. Um, Colin's background is in agricultural economics. Uh, he's worked as a consultant in Africa, Australia, Asia and the Pacific and uh, was also principal economist at the National Research Institute in Papua New Guinea. Um, his recent book is entitled Carbon Sinks and Climate Change Forests in the Fight Against Global Warming, and that was published last year by Edward Elgar. And today Colin is going to talk to us about uh, the challenges and costs involved with um, abating greenhouse gas emissions through uh, protecting against forest degradation in Papua New Guinea. And in Indonesia. And in Indonesia. Mm. Thank you very much, Michael. No problem. It gives me great pleasure to make this presentation today. A little bit about myself. I first worked in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea 30 years ago. And uh, I was an agricultural economist at that time. (coughs) Prior to that, I was an agricultural scientist, and I was influenced by... Jonathan Swift, who said he who could grow two blades of grass with one grew before was worth more than all the politicians in the land. But I progressed from that, and I, I thought that he who could grow more than one blade of grass with two blades of grass with one grew before and pay for it was worth more than all the politicians in the land. I progressed even more, well, in my view, I progressed anyway. Some people say regress. When I uh, moved into environmental economics, or more specifically, ecological economics, on the grounds that he who could grow two trees where none grew before and pay for them was worth more than all the publishers in the land. And that's what we're talking about today, paying for trees, in fact, paying for stopping the removal of trees, in fact, forests, mostly primary forests, in uh, the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, deforestation is um, probably slowing down a bit, but it's slowing down from a high level, and decade by decade we're experiencing a massive loss of forest in terms of millions of hectares, probably likely to continue uh, if we look at a business-as-usual scenario. If we look at the sources of greenhouse gases, we find that the developed countries, uh, in terms of output from land use change and forestry, is very low, or possibly even negative. Um, Whereas, if we look at least developed countries, a subset of developing countries, we find that They are the major sources of land use change and forestry emissions. Let's have a look at where these uh, forests are that we're concerned about, mainly tropical forests. There's three sort of areas of main interest. One is Asia, Pacific. One is Africa and one is South America. The Asia Pacific is quite interesting, very diverse forest areas. And you see a little bit of green on the east coast there. Uh, as you travel um, up our coastline from northern New South Wales, it was once all rainforest, right up to um, 
when you start getting into a little bit of dry area, like Cape York and so on, Townsville. Um, you can take Townsville out too, but um, <clears throat> most of our tropical rainforest has been converted, much of it to sugarcane. There is, however, some wonderful rainforest still left, those of you familiar with the Daintree. The Daintree rainforest is really the largest block of lowland rainforest that we have left. If we look at the wet tropics world heritage area, yes, that's uh, rainforest. The, the um, Queensland wet tropic world heritage area, which is about a, a million hectares in size, stretches from north of Port Douglas to Townsville. It's mainly areas that were too hard to cultivate, in other words, too steep, but nevertheless, a very, a very lovely uh, swathe of uninterrupted tropical rainforest that we have. We're very lucky to have that. Um, some of you may not be <coughs> aware that there, uh, there has been a lot of clearing in Australia recently up to 2004, mainly in the Brigalow country, and it was due to Queensland's cessation of that clearing that enabled Australia to stay within its Kyoto target. That was a huge reduction in emissions. If you look at the emissions from energy generation transport, they have increased massively over the period of time for our compliance. Um, so that's really interestingly that the state government took actions which um, left the Commonwealth off the hook, basically. Yeah, so tropical Asia is going to, it, it has and probably will continue to be the major source of emissions. Um, the conversion to agriculture, of course, is very rapid. We see that in the non-tropics, there's very little happening um, at all. Basically, most of the clearing that was going to be done has actually been done, and the conversion has taken place in developed countries already. The recent research, and anybody who wants this PowerPoint will also get the references at the bottom, Recent research late last year suggests that now only 12% of um, global emissions are made up of emissions from land use change and forestry. And as I said, I'll give the references in the notes below these. Up until the end of 2009, it was thought that 17 to 20% of global emissions were due to land use change and forestry. But I want to dwell a little bit on the rubbery figures that we're dealing with here. Pretty important uh, when you're trying to work out what the costs of deforestation are, because if you're trying to work it out in terms of tons of CO2, you need to know how many tons of CO2 are actually being emitted. Nevertheless, despite that, <coughs> The pledge at Copenhagen, which was a dismal failure in terms of reaching a global agreement on deforestation, but uh, many would hail it as a great success in terms of a focus on red and the pledge, pledging of money for uh, red. Um, despite the fact that um, we, we, we now think that uh, deforestation is responsible for a lot less emissions. 
um, there was a, a substantial amount of money pledged um, by developed countries, 30 million for 2010 to 12, rising to 100 million US dollars a year by 2020. Pretty significant amounts of money, I think you'll agree. Uh, and in fact, to kickstart all this off, Australia is one of a group of countries that pledged three and a half million. I do need to emphasise that the, the Copenhagen Accord is a very loose arrangement. And these pledges are very loose. They're sort of non-binding. So it'll be very interesting to see, A, what the <coughs> supply of money actually is, and B, what the demand for money is, given that my thesis is going to be a lot more expensive to do this than people have thought previously. So does that mean that less is going to be spent or more is going to be spent because it's more expensive per hectare? Why this level of commitment by developed countries? Well, it's in our own self-interest, really. And uh, most commentators talk about the fact that it's cheap and easy to do uh, stopping uh, deforestation in tropical countries and developing countries. Um, and, and Stern started this off suggesting it was pretty low cost to do this and was picked up by Boucher of the Concerned Scientists Group. Um, and, and this has been the sort of the, uh, if you like, the conventional wisdom around the place, um, perpetuated by Garno, actually, in the Garno report in the early editions of that, you'll notice that um, Papua New Guinea and Indonesia were singled out as being cheap and easy uh, sources of where uh, Australia could put its money to stop deforestation and probably have offsets which would make it easier for us because it's quite expensive to reduce emissions in Australia. What are the costs of red? Well, um, of course, being an economist, I take a, the approach of the costs are the opportunity costs. What, what would have happened if you hadn't had red? That's the issue. So we need to know what business as usual would have been and then as we implement RED, what the dollars associated with that are, and the difference is the opportunity cost. Okay? So establishing what would have been before you went in and did reduction of deforestation is obviously the key to this whole thing. And you can see straight away there might be a lot of uh, problematic scenarios generated about what might have been before we stopped deforestation. Okay, so, so that's my basic approach to this issue. Well, let's have a look at <coughs> the components of the opportunity costs of red. And the way I'm approaching it, and many, most researchers do, is to work out the tons of CO2 emissions of water, <coughs> the dollar cost of that. <coughs> by <coughs> dividing your emissions, business as usual, by your avoided emissions, and comparing that with the emissions that you would have under red. Let's uh, examine the denominator to start with. Uh, what sort of emissions are being avoided by red? 
Well, here we see some extremely rubbery figures. I don't know whether any of you are familiar with the World Resources Institute CAPE website. Anybody use that? No? But it's a website that brings together all the latest estimates of emissions by country over the years. And you can actually go back to 1850 and, and, and chart what countries have been doing since then. Uh, right up to 2005, good, uh, supposedly good data. But amazingly, if you went into World Resources Institute Cape website last year, you would have seen that Papua New Guinea uh, was supposed to be emitting 146 million tonnes of CO2. However, if you go into the website today, you see that's down to 44. Now, I haven't noticed any re big reductions in... Uh, deforestation in Papua New Guinea to give this big reduction. And I was there for three months uh, this towards the end of last year helping PNG with its Copenhagen submission. I didn't notice any reduction at all. In fact, <laughs> quite the opposite. Logging is going <laughs> along quite nicely. So it's interesting to know where that reduction came. Uh, similarly, other websites are still suggesting that there's a lot of emissions coming out um, from uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, Fox et al. is a team from Melbourne Uni that I was working with that actually did the physical measurements of uh, greenhouse gases and had a very good model. We, we reckon about 40 tonnes of CO2, a uh, million tonnes of CO2 was the emissions, current emissions from PNG. Likewise in Indonesia, that somehow dropped for over uh, 1,000 million tonnes from 2009 to 2010, in estimates. That's a big drop, isn't it? I can't imagine that, um, you know, all the oil palm companies stopped clearing and the pulp companies stopped clearing and the smallholders stopped clearing. So, you know, we're looking at very rubbery figures here. So if you're trying to uh, work out the cost uh, per tonne of CO2 uh, and you're not very sure what, how much CO2 is, you can see you might come out with some very rubbery estimates of costs. Okay, let's have a look at the denominator now, the opportunity costs itself. Okay, if we look at the literature, particularly on in Indonesia, the opportunity cost is, is the net income per hectare foregone, what you would have got per hectare. Venter et al., Queensland Uni, suggests that it's the, in, in the case of oil palm, it's the after-tax income of the oil company companies. And Butler uh, suggests the before tax income of the oil palm companies. This is the, the sort of state of our state of knowledge at the moment is based on these these calculations. Other studies have come out with the pretty low um, levels of cost per tonne of CO2 avoided sort of global studies around $2.24 US per tonne. Uh, Doucher, the concerned scientist, $2.90. Olsen and <coughs> Bishop, who suggest that it's the net profits foregone, $3 to $7. Uh, Venter in their study in Indonesia, $10 to $33. And Butler, $12 to $29. Interestingly, if you go back to the Stern Review and read it more carefully, you will find 
a page there, 610, where he qualifies the fact that uh, stopping deforestation um, might not be as cheap. Okay, you could pay off people using the land, offset their income for gone, you can do that. But paying, paying such a payment would not reflect the full value chain within the country. Now that is an extremely key clause, extremely key clause, as I will elaborate. So what we've got here is huge backward linkages in the economy, particularly from oil palm producers but also loggers. You know, they buy lots of goods and services from other businesses. And those businesses buy goods and services from other businesses. So we've got a multiplier effect in the economy here. And that's what Rudd et al. were doing when they had the stimulus package. They knew that all this money going out on pink bats and installing them would flow through the economy and keep the economy going, using the multiplier effect, right? It's a, it's a well-worn uh, economic truism that if you spend a dollar uh, and pay somebody, then they will spend part of that dollar and save some of it and perhaps spend some on Im imports. And so it goes around. And that's an extremely important issue. Um, how am I going for time? Uh, no, you're fine. Colin. I'm fine. Because I just wanted to bring up another issue, and that concerns the Barrier Reef and compensation. Uh, in 2004, the extent of closures in the reef or no-take zones went from 4% to 33%, which was a big in increase in closures. And what this meant was that a lot of uh, fishing businesses were going out of business. Now, it was calculated by the Commonwealth this would cost $3.5 to compensate these fishes. But what they didn't do was look at their forward and backward linkages from that. There was a huge impact on the wholesalers of fish and the retailers and exporters of fish. And up and down the Queensland coast, these people were going broke and the politicians were going crazy opposing uh, this 30% closure. Likewise, the backward linkages from these fishing boats into Chandlery, people who sell boats, maintain boats, fuel, was also massive, affecting local ports and towns along the Queensland coast. So it was a huge fallout to this, unanticipated by Grumpa. Anyway, I was involved in developing the compensation package and uh, at last count, which was a couple of weeks ago, they had spent 200 million on compensation because of all the forward and backward linkages from these businesses. So it's something that's quite easily overlooked if we're not careful. Spending by palm oil companies, now it's, it's estimated by myself, and I've, I've done uh, in my paper, which is, I think there's some copies available, Natasha said there, yeah. You'll see the three companies that I've looked at, their, their, annual, their annual returns, <coughs> and the main Papua New Guinea company. Uh, their expenditure on goods and services and labour is about three or four times their net profit. Okay. It's quite huge in terms of millions, billions of dollars US in Indonesia, millions in Papua New Guinea, the expenditure. <coughs> Here we have a, a palm oil uh, mill in Indonesia, 
And it's a typical setup there. Around the mill, we have the what's called the estate or company-owned or even government-owned palm oil, or oil palm, I should say. And further out, we have the smallholders. Now, in Indonesia, there happen to be half a million smallholders producing oil palm, or producing the fresh fruit branches, which you see down in the left-hand corner. Half a million. There's also 1.2 million people employed in the industry. Um, and you can see how much linkage there would be from a big mill like this in terms of maintenance, um, in terms of transport, in terms of road maintenance, in terms of, uh, in terms of paying the smallholders for their product. Okay, so... All right, so we suddenly see that it's not just a net income of palm oil companies that we're looking at. Not at all. Uh, what about government, government tax? The income tax and export taxes are quite heavy in Indonesia. And in, in um, Papua New Guinea also. Uh, in fact, the, the New Britain oil palm is a major contributor to the tax revenue of the PNG government. And then we have the landowners and smallholders. Have they had a mention so far? 500,000 of them actually making a profit. What about them? Are they going to get paid out in this red or are we going to forget them altogether? I think they would be quite a strong political force if we pretended that we were going to just pay out the oil palm companies on their net profits and forget about 500,000 smallholders and 1.2 million employees. Indeed, in Papua New Guinea... There are 50,000 smallholders and 14,000 employees that have to be brought into the equation because their net profits are quite separate from the net profits of the company, aren't they? They need to be taken into account in the equation. So now we're building up a picture. There's far more than net profits to companies involved here. There's a massive take by government and a massive profits by this, the uh, suppliers, the many smallholders supplying. In Indonesia, they supply about 40% of total palm oil. Papua New Guinea is the same. So it's really mad. So actually, to leave them out is quite um, unusual, I would say. But we not only have that, we, we, we could say, well, Indonesia and Papua New Guinea would argue they need to be recompensed for their export income generated. Because without export income, you can't buy imports. And they might say, well, there's a national income involved here. This multiplier effect, the spending by these companies, logging companies, palm oil companies, is massive. It's absolutely massive and it's contributing to our national wealth far, far more than you'd expect just from calculating net income. OK, well, here's some actual results in PNG. This is the, if we were to stop logging in 2012, how much it would be, and I reckon this, this, we'd save about, um, uh, we'd probably save, you know, about 45 million tonnes of CO2 a year, quite significant, if that was happening, and it would cost about $3.74 to pay out the stakeholders per tonne of CO2. But if we look at export income and national income generated, it's much, much greater. 
We're $6.22. Now, we're talking about one of the cheapest countries in the world here, and we've already gone from about two fifty from some of the estimates to $6.22, haven't we? So it, it's pretty significant, even for the logging industry. Now, if we look at palm oil, then we're <laughs> upping the ante even more. If we just looked at companies and paying them out, then $9.16 per tonne of CO2 would do it. With government revenue and smallholder income, you're up to over $18 per tonne of CO2 compensation. But if you're looking at export income and national income, you're around getting uh, 36, uh, around $36 per tonne. So we've escalated up from uh, some of these earlier costs of around $20 to $30 to a substantial amount more, haven't we, that we might have to pay out in compensation. Okay? Now, what's going to happen if we said to logging companies and palm oil companies, now, we're going to stop you doing any more clearing and establishing any more uh, palm oil on logged country, and we're going to stop you doing uh, logging companies any more logging. Okay? Now, uh, they might decide that they could go onto already cleared land, but suitable land already cleared is not necessarily available. I would suggest that if that happened, you would get massive leakage and the companies would go elsewhere where they can get logs and establish oil palm. I mean, you take West Papua, the oil palm companies are already looking in there, the massive areas of land. Okay? Uh, leakage uh, to other countries in Africa that might want the palm oil income given that it's so profitable and the employment levels are so high you could quite foresee that there would be massive leakage ok so if those companies upstaked and, and went offshore likely to do in my view all that spending would go with them wouldn't it there wouldn't be that spending in the economy, which is massive. And that would have a bigger impact. So it brings home to you that if you were trying to compensate, you would have to do a deal with the Indonesian Papua New Guinea government in some way to spend the red money, or have sufficient money, first of all to bail out all your stakeholders, and secondly to generate the income, national income, that would have been generated anyway. Okay? So it becomes a big issue. So it's going to be a matter of the national governments dealing with these potential donors, like Norway, United States, Australia. It's a national issue, a national economy issue. It's not a matter of going along to a couple of oil palm companies and thinking you can pay them out their net profits and they'll be happy. Not at all. And so I think you know, we've really got to have another look at RED and see how effective it can be. This is um, New Britain oil palm in Akimbe in West New Britain, an aerial shot. And I just want to show this because it emphasised the employment. Over here in the background we have a uh, nursery and they're a big seller of seeds throughout the world, palm oil, um, uh, oil palm seeds, and it employs a lot of people. And uh, once again it's the same nucleus of state arrangement with the uh, bigger states surrounding the mill and the outgrowers further out. And as I mentioned before, even in Papua New Guinea, quite small, 50,000 outgrowers. 
and no less than about 15,000 people in permanent employment in the industry. Now, if we did this, we've got to look at socio-economic implications also, which I haven't covered yet, just concentrating <coughs> on economics. Now, a big issue in Papua New Guinea is stopping drift to places like Port Moresby, where there's a huge crime problem, unemployment and crime. If you pull out such industries, employing a lot of people, you're going to get that. Because people will have red money, but they'll have nothing to do. They won't be able to convert their forests. If you can't chop the trees down, you can't use the land, can you? You pocket the money, and what would you do? You'd go to Moresby. And I think that's what's going to happen. It'll happen with logging as well, not to such a great extent. Uh, because there's not much employment generated by logging companies, although it's 8,000 people in Papua New Guinea. So you've got to look at the social implications of this. So as you start going, scratching the surface, you see this, this red business is going to be one big headache for how you're going to deal with it. Just look at the employment and income to smallholders foregone if you pulled the plug on the new palm oil in 212 in Papua New Guinea. It'd eventually mean that the seven, about $70 million US would be foregone by two, 2037 and about 4,000 employees foregone. That's on top of what's going now. I'm assuming that there's no new oil palm, but the present oil palm continues. And that's why we've got a curve that takes a while to take off, because what I've done here is modelled uh, oil palm, um, and it takes a while for new oil palm to grow and produce oil. So this is from the modelling which I have done, but... Um, it's a significant amount of employment that you're going to generate in the future. <clears throat> Another thing I want to touch on, uh, which has been somewhat dismaying, actually, is that a lot of commentators are talking about uh, how cheap carbon... You can get cheap carbon in subsistence agriculture. In other words, paying off people not to do subsistence agriculture. And, um, you know, these um, people have, have been published these sort of results, and what they do is they measure the value of subsistence agriculture people are consuming and put a market value on them and say that's, you know, a pretty low uh, amount of money, and so your cost per carbon, a ton of carbon, is very low also. <laughs> and um, uh, the people that have been involved in presenting these figures, I think, have... Uh, um, indulging in a, a certain amount of hypocrisy, actually. I'll let that speak for itself. Um, now, the implication of this is that subsistence farmers would be actually be relocated to town and that you would give them vouchers for them to buy their produce from the supermarket. Now, that might turn out to be quite expensive, wouldn't it? relocating whole villages that are now in subsistence, and 80% of people in Papua New Guinea are still in semi-subsistence, and a lot of Indonesians also. If you're going to <laughs> relocate them to town and give them vouchers, it might turn out to be quite a bit more expensive than your dollar fifty or two dollars a tonne of CO2, mightn't it? So I just point out the ridiculous nature of some of this without a commentary on the 
real economic effects of some of these ideas, the scratching the surface and, and not bothering to go at all uh, any further in terms of what, it, what, is, what are the real social costs of, doing, of having such a program. Okay, so what have I done? I looked at the research question, which, what is the cost of stopping deforestation? The methodology I employed was um, financial and agricultural and emissions modelling in Papua New Guinea. And by the way, if anybody's really interested, I can give them the spreadsheets which have all the modelling in them. Um, and I've looked at the Indonesian studies. I haven't actually modelled myself, but I've actually taken the models that have been published and based my um, conclusions on those. <clears throat> and um, what, uh, what I have revealed is the cost to stakeholders and to the nation of, of doing red. <clears throat> so if we're looking at a compensation policy, we've got to look at what uh, impacts are uh, on the nation. It's got to be a national view. And that's the first, my first um, con major conclusion. Secondly, we need to identify who the stakeholders are. And there might be a lot more stakeholders out there than we thought there were to start with. Certainly not just palm oil companies. Okay. They need to be identified in detail and accurately. Otherwise, the political backlash is going to be so massive that you won't be able to get it off the ground. <clears throat> For what? Avoid moral hazard. It was a very interesting case of moral hazard right at the moment. <clears throat> if you go into the UNFCC website, you'll see that all the submissions made by the country since Copenhagen, they all said that they would put in a piece about how they were going to do their um, climate change policy in the near future. Well, Papua New Guinea has done its, and it's available. Interestingly, what they do, on the advice of McKinsey and Co., is to ramp up their whole economy till 2.30 at a massive rate. They're going to clear at a massive rate, they're going to establish oil palm at a massive rate, they're going to have massive uh, smallholder agriculture, they're going to do everything on a massive scale. Now, in PNG, the emissions from non-land use change are about 0.6 of a tonne per person. They're already a very low carbon economy. Most of it comes from um, land use change in Papua New Guinea. Okay? Uh, but they're going to ramp this up enormously. So the idea is that they were, if they were going to get paid off by Norway and so on to stop this, it would have to be a lot of money because they're really going to ramp it up by 2.30. Uh, what they really sort of forgot was the logs are actually going to run out by 2.25 anyway. <laughs> they won't have any more. And the logging is becoming more difficult because uh, easy logs to get are few and far between now. So, you know, it, it's absolute hubris and, and an example of moral hazard. Now, how many other developing countries are doing the same thing, especially those advised by McKinsey and Co. to use this model? Uh, I, I can mention a couple that have they've got this model. And um, I, I really think that the de developed countries who are potential donors are going to see straight through this, to be honest with you. 
and especially as we've done our reports from Australia and team up there working with Papua New Guinea people uh, on good data, uh, good scientific data about the level of emissions, how many logs there are and when they're going to run out and what the actual prospects for oil palm are in detail, especially when they have those at hand. And when the Norwegians and the Americans get hold of those, they will see that um, there is indeed a, a great deal of moral hazard involved in what Papua New Guinea is doing. <clears throat> okay, just some of my modelling on PNG. Uh, the uh, red columns, that's a sort of emissions, business as usual. And if we stop logging in 2012, the green is what would be abated if we stopped in 2012. It takes a while to take off because when you actually log, you leave a lot of dead trees behind. They take a while to decay and emit those CO2. So you have a gradually increasing uh, amount of abatement. But uh, you, sit, you see it's pretty significant. 40, it's about, at the moment, about 45 million tonnes per year of CO2 emitted just by logging. And that's selective logging too, where they take out a few trees. It's, it's, a, it's a very large amount uh, of, of CO2 in anybody's book. Okay, and that's how I've modelled uh, what would happen under business as usual. And it's, it's not that easy because we, we see the blips there in 2007 and eight. That was the global financial crisis, which hit PNG. It hit palm oil and it hit logging. The prices went right up and then they went down. So it's, it's not that easy to forecast what's going to happen. It underlies one of the difficulties. In my calculations, what I've done is I've derived the present value for these incomes. Right? So I've dis discounted the stream of income for the different stakeholders and divided by the um, level of emissions. And I think we can be much more certain about the level of emissions having done that work in Papua New Guinea. <clears throat> and I think it's ongoing in Indonesia than we can be about the income. But I do emphasise that in establishing these scenarios, um, I've actually discussed this with the logging companies and their representatives and the oil palm industry. So they basically agreed on the level of income that is, they thought was likely in the future. So it isn't just me thinking up something off the top of my head. Uh, and the oil palm abated the same thing. What would happen under business as usual? Big increase in oil palm area. And what could be abated with no more palm oil after 212? <clears throat> and these are the uh, incomes foregone of the different sectors in PNG from palm oil. Uh, national income, export income, company net income, smallholder net income, and so on. So it sort of gives you an idea how I've derived these figures because I've had to <coughs> project these out to 2037, which is, and I've done that because that's the whole cycle of, of palm oil, 20, 25 years roughly, from establishment to sort of, uh, yeah, get, a, get an idea of the income foregone over the whole <coughs> time span of. Uh, project. I think that's all I've got now. Mr. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. For more Griffith University podcasts, 
go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.